Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Our next guest is the author of a new book entitled Creative Selection Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Ken Koshienda, he joins us now in our 1130 studios, and he is also the former principal engineer of iPhone software at Apple. So if you have any problems with your iPhone, you know who to ask. Great to have you with us, Ken. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Tell us why you decided to write this book. Well, I thought I think I worked at Apple during an interesting time in its history. I got the opportunity to work on some products like the iPhone, but I also started at the company back in 2001 when Apple was still an underdog. And and the iPod hadn't even been released yet and and the Mac was still the company's main product and and it was at a 5% market share. Uh, in a computer industry dominated by Microsoft Windows. And so I was I was there, I was a witness to this effort uh, of Steve Jobs to make the company relevant again, not only in the market, but in people's minds. And and that's uh, with products like the iPhone and, and, and the iPod before it, right? That, that worked out pretty well. So Ken, here we are, Apple is now worth more than a trillion dollars in market cap. What point, in your tenure at Apple, did you kind of realize, huh, we're working on something that's really big? Well, when the iPhone came out, uh, it, of course, it built upon the iPod before it. And so Apple had already reestablished itself uh, as, as, as a company worth watching. But then with the iPhone uh, and, and, and the release of apps and, and the excitement that people had uh, that they could carry around this computer in their pocket and that he could download all of this software that that opened up all of these 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 new software and hardware networking capabilities to them. Uh, it became clear to us that that this was something special. Just give people a little flavor of how you ended up at Apple because you did not well, you graduated with a degree from in history. And I understand that you were also at one point thinking of a career as a motorcycle repair <laughs> yeah. expert. So when I graduated from college, I, I had a history degree uh, and I wanted to do- From Yale. Yes, I, I, I went to Yale. Uh, and, and, uh, but I, I wanted to do something different uh, from, from studying. And so I, I, I went to motorcycle mechanic school. I have to say, uh, this wasn't the most popular decision with my father, but- uh, my family got behind me and, and supported me, and so yeah, I went out to to fix motorcycles. You know, throughout my uh, throughout my life, throughout my career, I've 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 tried to figure out ways that I could reinvent yeah. uh, and, and and integrate new 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 efforts, new new directions, uh, new ideas. So, Ken, one thing that I'm struck by as Apple sort of charts a path forward, how much was Steve Jobs responsible? for the dynamism of Apple. And 
you know, does his his death and, you know, kind of the saturation of the Apple products at this point create a cap in how much further it can go and innovate? Well, you see, Steve created the the culture that we used at Apple to build products. And and to just talk a little bit about that a second, because I think it does inform so much about what 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 Apple is and, and how it how it does its work. You know, he was a great editor. And, and, and he set these assignments for people like me, a, a programmer, and he would evaluate the work that came back, you know, always with a mind for how these products would fit into people's lives uh, so that it wouldn't, wouldn't be just a piece of technology, uh, that it would be something that people would find meaningful and useful for them. You know, and this, this continues uh, on. His, his, uh, his legacy is still very, very strong in the company. Well, when you say meaningful to them, I mean, right now we're, we're uh, broadcasting as these Senate hearings go on with Facebook and Twitter. And I just have to wonder, I mean, given the fact that people are raising questions about, you know, iPhone or smartphone addictions and that people are using uh, social media that's being corrupted, according to some people, uh, by foreign actors and, and bots and the like, you know, does that does that vision change or is there something about that that has to change just uh, by nature of where we are right now? Yeah, I, I think as a society, as a culture, we are learning what to do with these new devices and 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 the pervasive part that they play in our lives. Yeah, we're this is still new to us. Uh, this technology, like at the iPhone, didn't exist a dozen years ago, and Twitter didn't uh, uh, either. And uh, so I, we are still trying to figure out how to incorporate these new ideas and these new capabilities into our lives. So it's you know I'm an optimist. I think we're going to figure it out. Well, your book is very optimistic as well, and I got to say it is a great read. It's called Creative Selection, and I'm wondering if you could just quickly tell the story about a demo that you made with a gentleman named Phil Schiller. This had to do with the QWERTY keyboard that, were, if you've got large thumbs, it's your fault, uh, using and creating the keyboard for the iPhone. It's a fascinating story about collaboration at Apple. Right. Well... You see, the the way that we did work was always based on demos. And 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 we used this creative selection process, this Darwinian process of evolving the 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 projects and, and, and the products from these early stage stages where lots of times the, the software wasn't very good. And so this this demo that you're you're mentioning was was an instance where this early prototype, well, it didn't really work very well for Phil. And like Apple, he said so. And so, you know, for me as a, as a product developer and designer, you had to have a pretty thick skin, but you had to react to what these people were saying when they tried the software, because that's the experience that people have. They walk into an Apple store and they pick up a device and they need to decide if they want to buy it or not. And, and so it was job, the job for someone like me to make sure that the product worked, that, that the experience would be good. Uh, when people tried the product. Yeah, and not to get too offended when people say, uh-uh, doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, sure it was, yeah. Yeah, it was then my my role to step in and figure out, well, what's making people have that reaction and to bridge that gap so that the experience is, is, is a good one rather than uh-uh. 
Ken Koshenda, thank you so much for being with us. Ken Koshenda is author and former principal engineer of iPhone software at Apple. His new book is Creative Selection Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Shares of Twitter, they are lower right now by 4.5%. This comes as the chief executive, Jack Dorsey, testifies before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Here to tell us more about these hearings and the companies is Mark Douglas, the chief executive of Steelhouse. All right, Mark Douglas, what do you take away from the hearings? Is this just a political theater or are there going to be substantive changes at these social media companies? Um, hi, good morning. So um, I, I I would put it a little bit between those two. I mean, I don't think there's going to be much that comes from these hearings from a congressional Senate perspective in terms of legislation that's essentially not already enacted by these companies. In other words, they already have controls in place and have taken actions and things like that. But I think the hearings are pretty informative. I think for anyone that chooses to watch them, like with the Zuckerberg testimony, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about how these companies operate. Mark, who do you think has performed better today, Jack Dorsey or Sheryl Sandberg? Um, Sheryl Sandberg, Jack seems to me personally um, fairly nervous. I think his never smiled demeanor, um, which is is kind of um, personally to me doesn't read that well. I think Cheryl, you know, her her experience as an executive and and kind of comfort just being in front of a microphone and in this setting, um, seems, she just kind of comes across much better. Mark, I wonder if you could comment on the world of advertising as it relates to social media and whether publishers, those people who purchase advertising online, are they really getting what the social media companies tell them they're getting or are they getting many of the fake and illegitimate accounts that have also been the subject of political investigation? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. So the Facebook in particular is widely considered the, the best performing advertising platform, period. Um, and so and the, the way that's uh, measured is two ways. Um, do people click on the ads and respond to them? And do they purchase? goods and services after they see the ads and the goods and services you can't the 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 clicks potentially um can be a, a little you know maybe a, a fake bot or something like that can do that there's not really an incentive to do it but people um companies run these ads and they get the purchases that they're looking for they get the consumer response that they're looking for so i think in particular on the social media companies it's considered a really safe place to advertise and a and very very high performing place for advertisers to place their money so given your background and your intimate knowledge of how the advertising works and data collection uh plays out what is the question that you would ask both Cheryl Sandberg and Jack Dorsey and what would you be hoping to hear? Well, I think what most consumers want to hear, so in terms of the question, let's say that question was coming from a consumer perspective, is, is my data being sold? I think when I talk to people, they generally understand these platforms are free. And, and in return for them being free, that they're going to receive ads, and those ads are going to be targeted at their interests, words they use in their profiles, things like that. What they, you know, where I think most people draw the line is, are you selling that data? 
in any way? Are you giving it away? Are you trading it in any way? And I think that's um, ultimately the real question here. Um, I know a lot of centers want to talk about political ads. I think that's a, um, another not consumer question, but a question that Americans have is, is you know, when, when their political ads placed, are they legitimate? Are they real? Um, those are the two key things. I think the consumer data, what's happening with my data, and, and can I trust that the ads I see, particularly in the political arena, are, are legitimate. Thank you so much for being with us. Mark Douglas, Chief Executive Officer of Steelhouse, uh, talking about what we've been hearing among the Senate Intelligence Committee, where we have uh, both Sheryl Sandberg as well as Jack Dorsey of Facebook and Twitter, respectively, testifying in front of Congress. Really interesting that this hearing was supposed to be about interference with U.S. elections. We've heard very, very little good point. about yeah, that. Right. <laughs> in fact, I haven't heard anything specifically about the 2016 presidential election or any specifics regarding what the companies have done to ensure that this doesn't happen with the upcoming midterm elections. Indeed, and there does seem to be a lot of focus on potential regulations or oversight of these companies, and perhaps that's what's leading the tech shares to decline more than other rival industries. The market for initial public offerings. In the United States, there have been announced more than $27 billion worth of initial public offerings so far this year. 197 companies here to help us understand the market is Manuel Henriquez, founder and chief executive officer of Hercules Capital. They are based in Palo Alto, and Manuel joins us now. Manuel, thank you very much for being with us. Tell people a little bit about Hercules Capital and the kind of money that you invest and at what stage, because because you're kind of at the very beginning for a lot of companies, maybe between one and $40 million of investment capital, correct? Well, we kind of um, help bridge the gap for companies looking to expand and grow without having um, to incur greater dilution. And you can either grow by using uh, venture capital equity dollars, or you can grow by having more conservative bank capital. We fit in that middle void where we actually help these companies continue to advance their innovations and their disruptive technologies by preserving more capital ownership to the original investors, uh, original seed investors and the founders uh, by using a vehicle called venture debt which is what we do. Hmm. Interesting. This is especially interesting to me because it comes at a time where there's increasing focus on how the number of IPOs has declined significantly in the United States. SEC Chair Jay Clayton has made this one of his priorities to uh, basically prompt more companies to go public in the U.S. What's your take on the IPO market? And, you know, do you sort of agree with people who say that people like you who offer this bridge financing reduce the need to go public? Well, there's certainly there's, there's a lot of factors to that, that question. I mean, number one, you can go back as far as decimalization uh, causing an impact on that. Sarbanes-Oxley, another issue uh, causing that. And then uh, the public shareholders demanding that business models be more developed and uh, start showing uh, less of a cash burn before they go public. And all of that has actually changed. And, in fact, fiscal 2018, we're probably seeing one of the most robust IPO market activities that we haven't seen in, in probably over a decade. And uh, so far, the uh, the first two 
quarters of the year have been very, very strong, with very strong performance for companies like, for example, to start with, like Roku alone uh, is up since its IPO almost, you know, almost three and a half times in its valuation. Uh, DocuSign, one of our own portfolio companies, has been a blockbuster, doing phenomenally well, up probably 100, 100 plus percent since going public. And there's multiple uh, examples of that throughout those recent IPOs. But what makes this IPO market very interesting and very unique, it is not just subject to the technology tape uh, performing well. It's also seeing very good, strong performance on biotech. So it's a wide industry uh, uplift that's going on as investors continue to clamor for growth. They're seeing that growth coming from biotech and technology companies. Just to give the detail about DocuSign, that company went public in March of the year, a $723 million IPO, the shares so far performing up 123%. What can you tell us about investing in the biotechnology industry or medical device business? Because those are both areas that you're interested in. Yes, we have... um uh, about the $1.5 billion of assets we have invested, nearly half of it is invested in biotechnology companies from a wide array of companies from anywhere from biotech to medical devices to therapeutics, diagnostics. Um, and we're seeing a very great, strong performance in that area as well. And we're very happy with what we're seeing uh, with the results in the biotech companies. Despite the fact that you've been seeing this kind of storm cloud forming on drug prices that has been looming, either from the Clinton administration, or sorry, when Hillary Clinton was looking at drug price regulation, and now the Trump administration is looking at drug uh, price regulations. Although we've seen a lot of that headwind uh, causing some impact in biotech, we've seen so far the industry seems to be brushing that off, rightfully so, because they're making such a great medical advancement uh, that's going on there. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, when's the best time to invest in a company? Uh, Before they go public at this point, or after they go public? Well, that's a great question because what Hercules offers to the shareholders uh, who own our stock is the ability to actually own some of these uh, high-promising pre-IPO, pre-M&A companies that are now beyond just a concept. So we generally, we generally don't invest in a Series A or Series B research and development company. We tend to invest after the company has shown demonstrated progress in its development. So we try to take as much risk out of the investment as we possibly can and therefore allow our shareholders to participate in additional upside. So an interesting way of looking at Hercules is that Hercules can almost be be, uh, seen as kind of ETF of the venture capital industry. We have a wide distribution of different venture capital firms, different uh, uh, technology and life sciences companies that we invest in in different geographies of the United States and different stages of development, all aggregated in this one portfolio called Hercules. So you can participate in that by getting a nice dividend yield, generally about 9, 9.5% dividend yield, while also seeing capital appreciation when these companies go public, yeah. in the evidence of DocuSign, for example. Manuel Henriquez, thank you so much for being with us. Manuel Henriquez is founder and chief executive officer of Hercules Capital in Palo Alto, California. I want to shift our attention, though, now to retail, to shopping, and the places where you do that shopping. And joining us now is Tom McGee, President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Council of Shopping Centers. He joins us here in our 1130 studios in New York. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being back with us. Really good to have you, especially in light of the retail earnings that we've gotten, which uh, were inconsistent, I should say, where you have some of the longtime laggards, JCPenney, 
Sears, uh, L Brands, really suffering as a result of weaker earnings, uh, while the Amazons of the world and the Walmart and other big box stores do well. I'm just wondering, from your perspective, would it be better for JCPenney and Sears to go out of business and to let other healthier retailers go in those key spots in some of the malls in order to generate more traffic? Or do you think they should hang on for longer? Well, I think that, first of all, I think it's a fiercely competitive uh, industry, and it always has been. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, the retail names today and compare it to 20 years ago and 30 years ago, you see a lot of change and fluctuation that happens. I think consumers should make that you know, decision, uh, not me. And oh, no, I understand I, that, but yeah. I'm just wondering from a health perspective, do you think it's, it's better for stores to sort of live their life and then be turned over if they're not being super successful? Or is it better for familiar names to kind of hang on? I, again, I think I think that consumers should decide that. I think from a from a shopping center developer's perspective and an owner and manager, they're always looking for the mix and curation of folks that are going to drive foot traffic. And generally, what drives foot traffic is those brands that are doing well in the marketplace and are ha- offering products or services. Uh, and I think that's an important element in you know retail real estate today. Really, consumer real estate is that you're moving from really a product centricity and almost an apparel centricity that may have defined retail over the course of the last you know, 25 years or so to one that does include that, but it's a composition of a lot more, a lot more services, hospitality. You see, quite frankly, when you see what's really happening in, in retail in general is, and I, I, I've always believed, and I've said this on the show, this whole retail apocalypse is just you know kind of overblown. What really is happening is a retail renaissance and that there is a lot of redevelopment happening where you're mixing um, relative to what consumer demand is, mixing hospitality and living and retail all in one environment because people like to live, work, and play in one place. And I think you're seeing those things happen in retail generally. Here in the United States, and you know, we just recently is- issued kind of a global perspectives report because we are an international organization. And I think you see those same trends at different stages taking place across the world as well. All right, I'm going to give you a list of brands, yeah. and uh, you can raise your hand if you've heard of them, because I confess that I've only recently <laughs> uh, you know, tried to keep up to date. Thread Up, Everlane, All yeah. Birds, Away, Cotopaxi, Ministry of Supply, Indochino, and M. Gemini, OES, and Casper Sleep. What do they all have in common? These are digitally yeah. native brands yeah. that have all opened actual physical stores yeah from the perspective of the international council of shopping centers do those kinds of brands demand something different than what a traditional store based operation wants are they savvier in some ways do they want something different what are they what do they want i I, first of all i think it's the i think it's the natural evolution that we should expect that to be uh, a continuing trend i think the last 10 years of really retailers are really invested in their online channel and you know not surprisingly so because that was new and emerging i think what retailers well bonobos is one example right because walmart bought them sure and now and now what you're seeing though is retailers and i really do believe this is the trend of the next 10 years retailers are going to invest in their physical channel and that synergy that's going to take place because consumers really don't care they just want you know best price best service regardless they're somewhat channel agnostic i do think what you'll see though is the stores of the future 
will increasingly focus upon experience. I think some of the brands that you're talking about, you know, Casper, the sleep, you know, it's a sleep center and, you know, they're going to focus upon experience as opposed to just a collection of products. And so inferred in that is, yes, the experiential aspect of seeing merchandise in a different way, but also just the a greater level of customer service than you've had in the past. You know, the uh, FAO Schwartz is opening up, you know, a new store here in Rock Center and all of us that are, you know, grew up in the same age group are excited about that. But, it was, you know, when they talked about, you know, the store, they talked a lot about experiential. They're taking a lot of space, but experiential and that the folks that are going to work there are really going to be in some, pl- in some ways in character. And, you know, you're going to have almost a theatrical experience when you go there. Hmm. And that's on one end of the Extreme. On the other end of the extreme, you have something like a TJ Maxx, quite frankly, which is, you know, which doesn't really doesn't have much of an online presence, but it is an experience because it's like a treasure hunt, right. right, to go there. And I think retailers are going to focus more upon what's my experiential offering within my store that's going to differentiate me to our competitors. Since you did just issue a global report, where in the world are you seeing uh, commercial retail space gain value at the fastest pace right now? Well, obviously, the emerging markets, um, you know, Asia is uh, is with a growing middle class. Um, you certainly see a lot of investment uh, in retail real estate. I think the Middle East is doing uh, some things that are quite innovative and, and really, I think, set an example for some of the things that we uh, are looking to do here in the United States. Um, if you go to a mall in Dubai, for example, I mean, we all have heard about skiing, the ski slopes. Right? And skiing and surfing. And shopping. Exactly. And they've been the doing that. That's a decade uh, ago. And you're you're going to see those types of things. You're already starting to see those types of things within uh, malls and shopping centers here in the United States. And so I, I think you're, I think what you're finding in North America is in some cases learning uh, from the rest of the world. We have historically been more, much more department store centric here than the rest of the world. I think we are evolving to become much more hospitality and service oriented. Which I do think, and I, I don't think it can be uh, overstated, the importance of demographics. You have a, you know, a, a baby boomer generation that's generally empty nesters now. Uh, you have a millennial generation that is not yet in kind of their, you know, having kids, having a home type of a period of their life. And both of those, the largest demographic groups in our country and really in the world, are very much focused upon consuming experiences and services now. Now, maybe the millennials 10 years from now will be in a different stage of life, but when you look at what they want right now and what the baby boomers want, which is the hugest percentage of our population, that's what's driving a lot of the changes in retail. Thanks very much for being with us. Tom McGee is the president and the chief executive of the International Council of Shopping Centers, and they are out with their Global Perspectives Report. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.